Good afternoon. The panel RNZ National. Mary, Margaret, Slack, Scott, Campbell with me. Uh, just a bit of feedback on that. The poem and letter brought tears to my eyes and joy to my heart. What kindness. I'm inspired to write letters. Uh, thank you, says someone. So that um, poem to David Longer, that'll be online uh, at the panel uh, so rnz.co.nz slash the panel. Also, pictures uh, we talked about of um, the pink and white terraces uh, we discussed uh, on the website after the show. To this, first up, the government has unveiled new legislation to tax multinational companies that provide digital services. The bill will be introduced to Parliament today. The likes of Apple, Google, Meta pay little, if any, tax in Aotearoa despite making money here. For example, in 2017, it emerged Apple had paid no tax at all in New Zealand for a decade despite sales topping $4 billion in that time. So this will be expected to bring in $222 million over four years. Now, Professor Michael Littlewood from the Faculty of Law, Auckland University, whose research interests include tax avoidance and international tax. Professor Littlewood, welcome. Hello, good afternoon. Good afternoon. And you wrote a report on just this topic not long ago. Tell us about that, what it recommend. Uh, well, the, the OECD is, is, the, uh, is the source of these proposals. Um, and the OECD idea for taxing uh, digital services, taxing large multinationals on digital services income, is uh, stalled. And so a, a large number of countries in New Zealand are putting in place unilateral digital services taxes, uh, partly so that something is done in the meantime pending the OECD proposal happening, and also to increase the political pressure to improve the odds of the OECD project making progress. Yes, so as it stands, the tax will be applied at 3% on gross taxable New Zealand digital services revenue. Uh, And is that a similar rate uh, comparable to other countries? Is it enough? What do you think, Michael? It probably isn't enough, but it probably is comparable to what other countries might do. It might be slightly heavier tax than it would appear, because as you say, it's going to be imposed on gross revenue, not on net income. So that the the rate at which companies in this company in this country pay tax is 28%, but what they pay tax on at 28% is their net income, which is their revenue minus their expenses. Whereas the way this digital services tax will work, it'll be 3%, which is obviously a lot less than 28%, but the 3% will be applied to the gross revenue, without any deduction for expenses. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. Stay there. Let's bring our panel, Mary Margaret. I'm curious to know, what are the biggest challenges in achieving multilateral agreement for international tech regulation and why has the process stalled? There are some quite difficult technical problems with how to make a tax of this nature work, but there are more importantly political problems. So that if you think of of the the large multinational uh, companies that carry on heavily digitalised business, you will find that... um, Many of them, perhaps most of them, are American. And the Americans are um, opposed to this project. Why? The, the, um, well, they're opposed to American companies paying tax, uh, particularly on income derived by American companies from countries other than the U.S., 
So really the implicit United States government's position on this is that U.S. companies paying very little tax on their uh, income, particularly their offshore income, is a price that's worth paying for um, for uh, continued dominance of the global economy by large American mm. companies. I see. Scott Campbell. Um, Professor, Australia did something similar to this in the pharmaceutical sector um, six, six, seven years ago, and there were some concerns at that time whether or not companies might have pulled out of Australia. Do you see a similar type of risk to uh, what we, you know, what we might find here? The likes of Apple, Google, Facebook, Meta, etc. Are they realistically going to leave if we put this tax in place? No, I don't think so. And what would what would keep them here? I guess, or what what would be the argument for not doing this sooner? Why wouldn't we have done it sooner if we've known about it for so long? Um. Well, I, I suppose that um, digitalisation of business is, is a trend, as you say, that's been going on for some time. And the, uh, the wheels of tax reform, uh, particularly if it has to be done multilaterally, tend to move fairly slowly. So the OECD um, proposes that a multilateral solution whereby as many countries as possible adopt the same solution. Um, and that, that would be definitely advantageous because if different company, different countries institute different types of tax, then it's likely to get a lot more complicated than it would need to be if there's some form of um, agreed tax that would be implemented by a large number of countries with more or less the same rules. Interesting, isn't it? I see an article in The Guardian here um, that uh, UK's digital service tax reaps almost £360 million from US tech giants in the first year, including Amazon, Google, and Apple. That's just in the first year. Uh, so it's, 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 they've imposed a, uh, a surcharge and uh, they're reaping a lot more than they thought. Can you explain to our listeners, how do these mega companies get to pay next to no tax here? Can you explain that for our listeners? There's a general rule that... A foreign company only has to pay New Zealand tax if it has in New Zealand what we call a permanent establishment. And a permanent establishment basically means an office with at least one employee in it. And so some of these companies are able to derive profits from New Zealand without having any office here and without having any employees here, so they don't have to pay any New Zealand tax. Even if they do have an office in New Zealand with employees working there, they only have to pay New Zealand tax on the profit that is made by the New Zealand office. And ordinarily, even if they do have an office in New Zealand, they will arrange for most of the profit, uh, perhaps nearly all of the profit, to be made by some other company in the group, which might be situated in the tax haven. So that some of these companies don't have a physical presence, don't have a permanent establishment in New Zealand at all, and even the ones that do, the permanent establishment would commonly make not very much income and so not pay very much tax. All quite complex and convoluted, isn't it, Mary Margaret, when you start uh, thinking about it like this? It definitely is. And I, I'm, I wonder if you're worried at all that tech conglomerates seem to always move faster than legislation can keep up with. I think that is definitely the case. Um, although I, I was intrigued when the, uh, the legislation proposing this particular tax um, there's actually two new taxes happening. Um, one of them is this digital services tax, and the other is a tax called the multinational top-up tax. 
And the multinational top-up tax, uh, as you suggest, is extremely complicated, whereas the digital services tax, if you look on the, um, in the revenue website, you can find the, the uh, legislation there. And I've, I haven't had a chance to read all of it because it's um, only been up since about lunchtime. But if you do read it, I think you'll find it is surprisingly brief. So um, I, I would guess it all up to about five pages. So whether they really think that this is going to be a feasible way to impose this tax, a simple statute, I think is um, curious. Before you go, Professor Littlewood, uh, to wrap up, these mega companies paying tax, is this fair? Yes, of course it is, Uh, mainly because if you are a New Zealand company, then you're paying tax at 28% on your profits. And if you are a small or medium-sized or even a large New Zealand company, are very much up against it, competing with enormous foreign companies. And it, life is difficult enough as it is if you're a New Zealand company without having an unlevel playing field such that you have to pay tax at 28% and they don't. Nice to have you on the program, Professor Littlewood. Thank you for that explainer. Uh, that's uh, Michael Littlewood, Faculty of Law, Auckland University. His interests include international tax and uh, a tax avoidance, 18 past four. Don't forget our snap panel poll. It's just a snapshot, just the mood of the panel whanau across the country. Do you support, if you've just joined us, do you support the Restore Rail protesters that were out again this morning in Wellington? Text me yes or no and why or why not? Lots of um, hearty responses, shall we say, coming through on that issue. But to this... The living wage is set to rise from tomorrow. A full recalculation of the living wage happens every five years. And tomorrow it's going to be $26 an hour, September 1. It is set apart from the minimum wage. And according to Living Wage NZ, it is to ensure people can live with dignity and to participate in society. With us is the Reverend Stephen King, chairperson of the living wage movement, Reverend Ken Kiara. Kiara Wallace. An increase of what is it, two dollars thirty-five an hour. What will this mean for those getting it? Oh, Wallace, we constantly hear stories um, in our movement um, from hard-working families in New Zealand who, on minimum wage jobs, who it's just impossible for them. We had one story. Um, of a cleaner that uh, whose car had broken down uh, and he was working two jobs on um, minimum wage. His car had broken down and he wasn't able to afford to get that fixed. And so his shift finished at 2am and he had to wait till 6am every morning to catch the bus back uh, to where he lived. So that's the kind of thing, that's the kind of gap mm. that the living wage seeks to make up. It's the difference between... Um, the $5 fee for the kids to be able to join in at basketball. It's the difference between um, getting a car repair. Um, that's what it does. Um, so it's, it's real, it's it's real significant. change for families yeah. that need it. Yeah, I'm just looking here. The uh, The first living wage in the country was set, what, $18.40 back in 2013. Minimum yep. wage that same year was $13.75. I'm interested to know, Stephen, um, what do employers say to you about why they decide to sign up? Because it's opt-in, isn't it? Mm, it's opt-in, absolutely right. Um, look, we are in 
uh, an age where many companies are looking at what makes their business a sustainable business. And caring for your staff is part of that sustainability equation. And in fact, Radio New Zealand became a living wage employer in June this year. And that living wage accreditation occurred as part of your sustainability drive across all aspects of the business. And so that's why employers do it. They value their staff and they recognize that um, in the same way that they are concerned about their supply chain, they're concerned about the people that deliver uh, the services or manufacture the goods or whatever it is they do. That's why they do it. That's why companies opt in. It's because it's part of their ethos of just overall right. wanting to have a good business. Stay there, Stephen. Mary Margaret. As Wallace sure. pointed out, the the minimum wage and living wage are set apart, aren't they? I wonder, yes. are there changes that you would like to see beyond increases to the living wage, more structural changes to fix the system that we're working with? Oh, that's a very good question, Mary Margaret. Look, this idea of um, ensuring that workers are paid a living wage is not a new idea. I mean, as early as 18, in the 1890s, I think one of the popes wrote a paper about, he was looking at the change in society as it, as it became a more urbanised, industrialised society. And he raised the question saying, well, what if the system never pays enough for these people to live? And that's been a question that's gone on since that time. And actually, that's the point that we have a minimum wage. Um, the minimum wage um, came in, in in 1946, and at that time it was 83% of the average wage. But in 2020, in 2012, it's come it dropped to 53%. So this idea that somehow, if we leave the economy to do what it needs to do, that the lowest paid workers in it will be able to achieve. Uh, Right. Fear and equitable lifestyle. Scott. It just hasn't happened. Yeah, so, yeah but there's there, plenty there is, of things but, that we could do. Scott. And, and I don't disagree um, with what mm-hmm. Stephen's saying in the main there. Um, I think that as a business owner, we do have to take mm-hmm. into account it can be a false economy sometimes because you're bringing up the wages of living wage, and I agree people need to have the money to live, absolutely. Um, but what that means for some employers is that they might have to lose one or two staff to actually pay for those rises. And, um, you know, I think we need to, uh, there's a balance in that, uh, absolutely. And I think most employers that you talk to now, as Stephen's already outlined, um, will build it into their ethos and their business. And I just, it's it's a, a discussion that we need to have with all parties inside the 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 actual tent talking about it otherwise we can get to a place we're putting a squeeze on business owners and it becomes really difficult for them also fair point Stephen yeah and Scott that's you know really interesting because if you think about the businesses that were the sort of the early adopters of a a more just equitable um, ethos um, you know in this 370 odd businesses who were accredited across New Zealand, which is supporting 53,000 families with the living wage accreditation. But a lot of those early adopters were small artisan companies that as they put together, they built that into their ethos. And we get that um, the times are hard at the moment. And so um, we actually have, we work closely with our employers because, you know, they're really important. They've chosen to support their people, which is what the point of our movement is. And so um, I think that it's all about, it is, it's a change in attitude 
um, more, it's more about attitude than economics, I think, a lot of the time. And, you know, we're seeing increasingly large organisations, you know, and it's not... Um, yeah, what's the makeup? You know, what, st- what type? Is it, is it your corporates? Is it your small roastery or cafe on the, on the local corner? What sort of people are involved? Oh, certainly your local roastery um, on the corner, um, cafes, um, those kind of artisan-based businesses. And the Banks Association came on board. So all New Zealand's banks are... Um, well, they can afford people. it. They can, um, but they didn't have to. So we uh, are very appreciative that they chose to pay their cleaners and their security guards the living wage. Um, we have councils, um, a number of councils. Wellington City Council was the first adopter of that. We just had the Canterbury yeah. um, Regional Authority come on board. Um, so councils are, are leading are leading some of that um, attitudinal change across the community. So it's actually across the um, okay. across the spectrum. And I encourage listeners if they want to jump in to see the type of companies, it's all up on livingwage.org.nz. If you look at our living wage employers, you can search by region. And uh, it's a, it's an amazing um, cross section. You can go and have a look of, hey, of New Zealand. Reverend King, kia ora. Good to have you here on the panel. Okay, thanks for having me, guys. Stephen's the chairperson of the Living Wage Movement. There, uh, Scott Campbell and Mary Margaret Slack with me. Can I just uh, raise this issue? I just I, I feel the need to um, uh, read out this email. It's such a nice comment from Scott regarding politicians. I'm looking at political signs being graffitied right now in my neighbourhood, mm. and it makes me think how courageous you would have to be to put yourself forward like they do. Yes, politicians deserve a scrutiny, but we need to keep a balance. Um, it's becoming just too toxic. Um, who would do the job? Uh, who would put their hands up to give the job a go? Who would, says... And, and I'm thinking about that, and we're driving past because little juniors... Uh, learning about politicians and placards and why they do it in primary school, driving past and every single every single billboard Scott graffitied, mm. marked, vandalized. It was it's so sad. It, it really sad. And I think it's that point that you just made. Why why would somebody put themselves forward for that? Um and then we go on and ask the question, well why do we not have better people putting themselves forward for local councils and the likes? Um, and why would you uh, when you're seeing some of the vitriol that's going around we don't always have to agree with each other and we never will but at least be respectful yeah. All right. agree to disagree that is going to be a theme tomorrow on Friday's panel at 25 past 4 do listen in do you say thank you to the bus driver when you get off if you take public transport this was raised by Newsable on Stuff that it is the Kiwi way to say thank you driver it's a rite of passage. A friend of mine from North London, a guy called Rob, I think you know him, Mary Margaret, he said, well, they never say thank you, that it's your job to drive the bus, not in our culture, he said. So should you take, should you say thank you to the driver? Mary Margaret. Always. I like to say hello as well. I don't think we should ever miss an opportunity to connect with another human. You might make each other's day getting on and but asking how job. each other are. You're, you're far away. You know, they're at the front. You're, you're getting out the back. Isn't it patronising? Patronising? I don't think so. Thank you, driver. I think it's nice. I, I like the opportunity to talk to a stranger and put a smile on each other's face. But to Rob's benefit, I will agree that in London they do tend to get on the bus on the back, whereas you're 
here I always oh. say hello. But if someone says hello but maybe not thank you, I would understand that a little bit more. But, yeah, in London it's a bit different because you're getting on and off on the back and you can do a whole bus ride without seeing the driver. Maybe that makes sense. Yeah, well, anyway, I did a snap poll about this uh, yesterday evening, Scott. So I counted 18 people getting off the bus, you know, consecutively. Of mm. the 18, six people said thank you, driver. And actually, I was quite amazed. I thought it would have been more about 12 or 13. But no, it was six out of 18. What bus route was it? It it was the 195. It was the 195. It was, I tell you what, Scott is not well to do. It's just a highly average bit of beautiful suburb. Myself and my partner, we were out for lunch yesterday and we went to this cafe and I said thank you to the cafe team as we were walking out the door and people turned around at me and looked as if I was some sort of weirdo. But it's just the courteous thing to do, isn't it? I think so. Well, I can understand the cafe because they're there. Thank you, great great coffee, but this is a bus. Why say thank you, driver? They're they're service though, aren't they? They're both services. I agree. Do you, when you're walking around the street, do you, do you say good morning to passers-by? No, of course I don't. Really? Yeah, I do. I Give do. it a go. To strangers? Yeah. Small town New Zealand thank you to you as well too, Wallace, at the end of the I just, I mean, isn't that intrusive? You walk past, it's a busy street, good morning, they don't know you. What you were the other them. 12 people doing when they got off the bus, though? Were they too involved in looking at where the card was being yes. put? Or... Yeah, exactly. So they just tagged on. I was I was watching very closely, Scott, because uh, I wanted to get this poll right. So eight <laughs> of 18 people, six people said, thanks, driver, or thank you, thank you. Uh, various responses. And of those who didn't, how many were on their phones? Quite a few. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, uh, your thoughts on that. Uh, should you say thank you, driver, when you get off the bus uh, here in New Zealand. Um, yep, I say good day and thank you to bus drivers. Being pleasant doesn't cost anything. Um, someone says on Fortnite, you can thank the bus driver. Most gamers do too. <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're on the panel. Uh, NZ National, we have Mary Margaret Slack, Scott Campbell.